Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, which has been one of my favorite interviews so far, we go deep on mastering the superpower that underpins all other powers, how your brain's automatic survival mechanism tilts you towards unhappiness, growing the mental resources to deal with the biggest challenges of your life, and we go down the rabbit hole of exploring the idea of the self, the ego, and much more with Dr. Rick Hansen. I literally got chills during this recording. It was one of the most profound conversations we have had on this podcast. Last week, we had another lucky winner. We gave away a $100 Amazon gift card to Christian Strider from Munich, Germany. You could be the next person to win. All you have to do is to text the word SMARTER to the number 44222 or go to our website, scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and join our email list. Lastly, if you want to get 10, yes, 10 extra entries into the giveaway, all you have to do is leave a positive review on iTunes and email me a screenshot of the review to my email, matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I look forward to hearing from you. In our last episode, we explored the boundary where Eastern and Western medicine meet with international yoga expert Tiffany Cruikshank. We discussed how cultivating body awareness can put your nervous system in relaxation mode, how meditation impacts your metabolism, the lessons Tiffany has learned from more than 25,000 patient visits, and how to jump in and start yoga today as we demystified and examined some of the science behind the many practices of yoga. If you're curious about yoga and you want to learn more about it, or if you've been a longtime fan and you want to dig in even more, listen to that episode. 
Today we have another incredible guest on the show, Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a psychologist, senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, and a New York Times best-selling author. His books include Hardwiring Happiness, Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nature. He's also the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. He's been an invited speaker at NASA, Oxford, Stanford, Harvard, and many other major universities. Rick, welcome to the Science of Success. Man, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, we're very excited to have you on today. So to, to kind of kick things off, tell the audience a little bit about you know your background and how you kind of uh, became fascinated with sort of the connection between neuroscience, psychology, and some of the Eastern religions like Buddhism. Oh, well, I, I think what got me into it, so I'm a psychologist and uh, you know I've been around the block for a while, so I, I got interested in this stuff actually in the beginning of the 70s. And it just seemed to me logical, I guess, that if you've worked at the intersection of brain science, psychology, and the great contemplative traditions of the world, where those three circles overlapped had to be where the coolest stuff was, right? Uh, you know, you understand the hardware of the brain, then you're tapping into 100 plus years of good research on uh, psychology, and then you're bringing to bear thousands of years of people doing really hardcore practice, uh, you know, training their minds really exploring the upper reaches of human potential. And uh, just to finish here, it's like if you, I've done a lot of rock climbing. And if I want to get better at rock climbing, I want to watch people who are better than me, right? So I want to kind of tune into what are those people doing who are moving like human geckos over the cliffs and then internalize that, at least my next step in their direction. Well, in the same way, the people who have really explored what it is to be deeply resilient, happy, peaceful, and loving, even in really tough conditions, those are the great contemplative traditions of the world. So I do a lot of reverse engineering. I try to imagine plausibly what could be the underlying neuropsychological foundations of people who are deeply strong, happy, successful, creative, and so forth, and then work backwards to how can I use the mind alone, no medication, no surgery, the mind alone to stimulate and therefore strengthen those circuits in the brain, building up muscles in effect inside yourself that then you can draw upon everywhere you go. Because even though it's certainly good to, you know, improve the external environment and improve your own body, you know, those tend to change a lot. But you take your mind with you wherever you are. And by, you know, being committed to skillful, uh, self-directed neuroplasticity, uh, I call it, um, you have a, an amazing capacity, no matter how tough your life is or what the past has been, to actually build inner resources inside yourself for the future. And you touched on something, which is, you know, a phrase or a, a word that people often kind of use interchangeably, which is mind and brain. But you yeah. make a really important distinction between the two of those. Can you share that? Sure. Um, if you think about it, so we're all having experiences, right? And, uh, you know, squirrels are having experiences. I think lizards are having experiences. I know my cat is having experiences. I'm having experiences. You're having experiences. We're hearing, tasting, touching, and smelling, thinking, remembering, and so forth. That realm of experience, if you look at it, is immaterial. It, you cannot hold a sound. Uh, you cannot, uh, you know, uh, measure a piece of information, 
Well, so we live in this uh, world of phenomenology, if you will. It's a virtual reality, and it is continually constructed by the underlying hardware of the brain, uh, embedded in the nervous system, embedded in the whole body, embedded in life altogether. So the point is that when we use a word like mind or mental or cognition or psyche or similar kinds of words, they all refer to the realm of immaterial information processing in the nervous system. And that might sound kind of weird to think about, but that's actually the real bottom line. Uh, the function of the nervous system is to represent information, including very basic signals like uh, a sound landing on your eardrum, then a cascade of changes proliferated through your nervous system, carrying the information of the sound of a car honking or a bell ringing or a baby crying or, you know, your lover murmuring in your ear or whatever it might be. And um, so we have then two processes happening simultaneously. And this has practical implications. We have mental activity, you know, unfolding, uh, conscious experience, which is inherently intangible. And then we have very tangible, gushy, molecular, neurotransmitter-based, synaptic, neural circuitry-based processes underlying that, you know, flow of immaterial experience. So the two are going together. There might be supernatural or transcendental factors at work. Uh, personally, I think there is spooky stuff outside the natural frame of science, but that's it. Just inside the natural frame of science, there's an utterly tight correlation, a co-relating, a co-arising of mental and neural activity. And the practical takeaway then is by shifting or altering what you pay attention to and then what you do with what you're resting your attention upon, by doing that, you can deliberately use mental activity to stimulate the underlying neural activity in various skillful ways we'll probably get into so that you can grow and internalize more inside yourself, more confidence, more commitment to exercise, you know, more understanding of other people, more skills with other people, more healing from your last fill-in-the-blank job, relationship, childhood. Uh, you really can do that from the inside out, which I think is extremely important for just ordinary coping, healing, and well-being, but also in terms of adapting to a future that is very dynamic, very changing, very uncertain, in which we need to deal with all kinds of new things. Being able to maximize your learning curve from the inside out through everyday life experiences is the superpower, in effect, that uh, builds all other powers. Uh, and by drawing upon that superpower through learning how to learn, and, and when I mean learn, I really refer to your social, emotional, motivational, attitudinal, even spiritual kinds of learning, you know, learning how to learn those good things, not just learn the multiplication tables. If you've learned how to learn, that's your superpower, because then you can learn how to learn anything that matters to you. And you touched on this, but Dig a, dig a little deeper into the idea that what happens in your mind can actually change the physical structure of your brain. Yeah, it's because um, neural activity is required for mental activity and repeated patterns of neural activity change neural structure and function. You know, the classic saying from the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb is neurons that fire together, wire together. And on non-human animals, you know, just 
acknowledging the ethical uh, you know issues in that territory. That said, research on non-human animals that can be extremely invasive has really drilled down literally to the molecular or epigenetic processes, which are also molecular, uh, going on inside you know individual neurons all the way up to large-scale structures. And then related human studies have shown that um, repeated patterns of you know thought or feeling, for better or worse, and uh, one of the things you know about my work is that I uh, have really explored the implications of what scientists call the negativity bias of the brain, the ways that, as I put it, it's like Velcro for the bad, but Teflon for the good. Um, we have a, a brain that's designed to be changed by the experiences flowing through it, especially negative experiences, especially especially when, when we were young. So uh, the point uh, being, or kind of the takeaway, is that research has shown that if people more positively, let's say, practice mindfulness routinely, or tune into their bodies routinely, or uh, do some kind of practice that helps them become happier, or more compassionate, or more loving, or more self-compassionate, then let's say eight weeks after some program in that, uh, you can see changes in the brain. Uh, down at the cellular, even synaptic level uh, with MRIs and so forth. And if people do things over the long haul, uh, for better or worse, you can see major structural changes, like literally people who meditate routinely tend to have measurably thicker cortex, the outer layer of the brain, in regions that regulate attention or help people become self-aware of themselves. That makes sense. You know, you work that muscle, it gets bigger, it gets stronger. And because it's bigger and stronger, making the analogy here for building up uh, tissue and circuitry and functionality in your brain, you then become more able to do various important things like remain mindful, even when, you know, the oatmeal is flying all around you. Uh, and it's there are many examples of this, what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, you know, including funny things like London taxi cab drivers, who at the end of their training, memorizing the spaghetti snarl streets, have measurably thicker cortex in parts of the brain, in this case, the hippocampus, uh, that are involved in visual-spatial memory. So they're working the function of some part of the brain, building up structure there. So a lot of people, um, it's really jaw-dropping to appreciate that uh, to update a traditional of uh, term, your mind takes its shape from what it routinely rests upon. And people can just feel this in their everyday you know, life. Are you ruminating about what's irritating, what worries you, how you feel hurt or let down? Or are you really caught up in a feeling of you know, stressful drivenness? You know, got to get all this stuff done. Tense and, and uptight. Or do you, is your moment-to-moment experience much more dominated by feelings of calm strength? Uh, feeling already connected to other people, already fundamentally contented, even as you dream big dreams and aspire without attachment, I put it, or feel, um, you know, even though you're grappling with challenges and, and even threats, that deep in your core, you're not being touched by this stuff that's happening. You know, where's your attention resting? And um, how deeply can you take into yourself those beneficial experiences, knowing that your brain is designed to fast track irritating, upsetting, stressful, hurtful, anxiety-provoking, you know, experiences deep into your neural structure. I mean, that's the negativity bias of the brain. That's the Velcro for the bad of the brain. And one of the finishing up here, 
things that I really work on. And people can check out my freely offered resources at my website, rickhanson.net. One of the things I'm really interested in is helping people, number one, learn how to learn, right? That's the superpower. And then apply that superpower to growing those particular inner strengths, those psychological resources, mental resources inside themselves that will help them deal with whatever they got to deal with. Maybe they're trying to really rise in their job. Uh, maybe they're really trying to find out what's, you know, what do they need to develop inside themselves to be happier in their intimate relationships or more successful there? Um, what do they need to grow inside themselves to compensate for feelings of hurt or mistreatment? Uh, from their childhood or their past as an adult, let's say. Well, what is, you know, if you think right now, listening to this, what, if it were more present in your mind routinely, would really help you these days? What would help you be more effective, happier, more healed, you know, more able to contribute to other people? And then, you know, I use my methods for helping people grow that particular muscle, as it were, inside their nervous system that then they can draw upon, you know, any way they want. I love that description. And I think that, you know, the, the, I love the phrase, uh, neurons that fire together, wire together. It gives people a very concrete and kind of simple way to understand that in a very physical, biological, real sense, your thoughts shape and change your brain. Yeah, that's right. And don't underestimate. I mean, a lot of the major research is on how chronic stress changes the brain right? Or depressed mood or irritation or holding on to grievances with other people or feeling helpless or defeated. You know, we're very designed to be very affected neurologically by those kinds of experiences. And to be clear, nothing here is about denying what's bad or rose-colored glasses, you know, as a way to look at the world or positive thinking. I don't believe in positive thinking. I believe in realistic thinking. I want to see everything. But, you know, honestly, even though I'm a a little bit of touchy-feely kind of guy as a longtime therapist, I'm kind of tough as nails. I really feel like, number one, life is often challenging. And, um, you know, the whole fundamental thing is, Uh, Help is probably not coming from the outside very often. You know, we've got to deal from the inside out with our own life. And the question then becomes, how do you be self-reliant? How do you really autonomously develop inner strengths of various kinds to deal with your own real life? And then second piece of hard-headedness on my part uh, is about this negativity bias. It's really getting that uh, what matters most in life is learning, is growing, developing, you know, healing, figuring stuff out, and so forth. Because you can't do anything about the past. The only question is, are you growing, learning, developing, improving from this point going forward? Um, and um, when you really, really kind of get from the inside out that it's on you, no one can make you learn, right? Only you, whoever you are, in this case, me, Rick Hansen, only oneself can help oneself learn from life's experiences. And um, we have a brain that's designed to cling to the negative or chase the positive, you know, with a sense of internal drivenness and discontent, you know, is where we come from. And it's really profound to realize that in your day to day, five, 10 times over the course of the day, 10, 20 seconds at a time, there will be opportunities to really register beneficial experiences and therefore heighten the encoding process and the consolidation process 
that converts in your body, converts that beneficial experience into some kind of lasting change of neural structure or function. And most people blow right by those moments. They waste them. I certainly have. You know, they and uh, they're nice in the moment. You know, a feeling of accomplishment, let's say at work or, you know, hanging out in the lunchroom, kicking back with people, nice sense of camaraderie maybe. Or you step outside and, you know, there's something that's beautiful that catches your eye or, you know, you remember someone who cares about you or you feel caring yourself. Whatever it is, we're having these moments. But the, are they making any difference? Uh, or are they flowing through the brain like water through a sieve, which is what routinely happens while well, negative material gets caught in that sieve every time? And five, ten times a day, people have an opportunity to take into themselves, to accept the good that's potentially available here and take it into themselves. They have that opportunity multiple times a day. And um, one of the, for me, most practical, grounded in science and positive things a person can do is to look for those five, 10 moments a day, usually a dozen or two dozen seconds long at a time, not a big deal, but then use them, you know, bring a big spoon, bring a vacuum cleaner, you know, suck them into yourself as a way to fill yourself up from the inside out. And that's a phenomenal opportunity to have, especially at a time when so many of us feel pushed around by external forces, at least inside our own heads, we're the boss and there are things that we can do. So going back to the idea of, of what creates this negativity bias, can you touch on how the brain's survival strategies kind of lead us to suffering? Yeah. Um, starting with a practical example, you know, you're in a relationship, let's say 19 things happen in a day or 20 things happen in a day. 19 are positive, one's negative. What's the one you kind of think about as you're falling asleep or your boss gives you a performance review, right? 10 items of feedback, nine are positive, one is room for improvement. What's the one you think about? It's that negative piece of information. So, you know, we all have a feeling for that from the inside out. You know, we're in a meeting. We make, you know, 10 points, right? And one of them and nine of them are really good. And in one of them, we use a word incorrectly. What's the one we obsess about as we're going down the elevator, you know, after that meeting? It's the negative thing. So we're designed to do that. It's not personal. It's not a character flaw. We're designed to do that because negative experiences over the 600 million year evolution of the nervous system, you know, negative experiences of predators or pain or natural hazards or aggression inside your band or between bands, those negative experiences usually had more urgency and impact for raw survival than positive experiences did of finding food or, you know, hanging out with your, you know, little rat family or, you know, your little monkey family or caveman family. Um, they're nice, but they don't matter as much for raw survival. So we have a brain today that's designed to do five things. I'll just go through them fast. One, scan for bad news. You can watch that in yourself. We're always kind of looking, what's the threat? What's the you know, thing that I've got that I might lose, what's, you know, uneasy or unsettled in my relationships, you know, scan for threat. Second, when we find that threat, when we identify that one tile in the mosaic of reality or our experience, that one tile that's flashing yellow or orange or red, whoosh, the brain over-focuses down upon it, losing sight of the big picture. 
to deal with the immediate reality, friend or foe, right? And then third thing that happens, the brain's designed to overreact to negative stimuli. If you play sounds for people or pictures for people that are equally intense, you know, equally loud or bright, et cetera, the brain reacts more to the negative content uh, because, again, that's what we're designed to do. And then fourth, now that we've scanned for bad news, over-focused upon it and overreacted to it, whoosh, that whole package, number four, is fast-tracked into emotional memory. Never forget, once burned, twice shy. Lots of examples of that, for example, uh, in relationships, uh, negative interactions are more memorable than positive ones, thus attack ads in politics, negative advertising. People remember bad information about others more than positive information or good information about others. Um, it's really easy for people to be uh, trained in helplessness. You need many, many counter experiences to feel like a hammer instead of a nail. So that's the fourth thing that happens, that fast tracking into emotional memory, while positive experiences, which tend to predominate in the lives of most people, with unfortunate exceptions, of course, those are nice. There's a quantity effect for positive experiences, but a quality effect for negative ones. So that's number four. And then last, number five, the brain is designed to be sensitized to the negative through the stress hormone cortisol that's released when we're super stressed, running for our lives from saber-toothed tigers, but also cortisol is released when we're you know, stuck in traffic late for a meeting or trying to get something done and the emails keep landing in our inbox uh, or someone is, you know, giving us that weird look across the dinner table or distance in some ways or we're worried about something. Hormones are released like cortisol and then cortisol goes up in the brain, sensitizes the alarm bell of the brain, the amygdala. So now we're more reactive to the negative and cortisol overstimulates and gradually kills neurons in a nearby part of the brain, the hippocampus, that puts things in perspective, inhibits the amygdala, calms down the alarm bell, the hippocampus does, and the hippocampus also uh, inhibits uh, the hypothalamus, a nearby region of the brain, that calls for stress hormones. So in effect, the hippocampus tells the hypothalamus, enough stress hormones already. You know, we don't need any more of that stuff. Well, that creates a vicious cycle because stress today, releasing cortisol, sensitizes the brain to the negative and weakens our capacity to bounce back, to become resilient in the face of the negative, which makes us more prone to negative experiences tomorrow, which sensitizes us further and makes us even more vulnerable to negative experiences the day after tomorrow and the day after that and so forth. And there's no comparable process of neurohormonal sensitization to the positive. We have to work more at it. And you can kind of watch those five things happening inside you. Now, the key, of course, is to be able to watch them, to be able to observe them and help yourself on three things. One, observe it when it's happening and step back from the process of being upset, irritated, frazzled, anxious, hurt, or blue. Two, you know, disengage from that process as fast as you can. Don't suppress it. If you go negative on negative, you just have more negative. But the trick is to step back from it and quit putting fuel on that fire. Quit, you know, looping through that resentful case against other people. Quit looping through that self-critical pounding on yourself, in part internalized from maybe your childhood. Um, stop doing that. And then third, you know, relatively quickly pull out of this negative, you know, crud storm and start looking for, okay, all that negative stuff is true. Whatever's true about it is true about it. 
and also what's true? What are the positive things that are also true in the world around me, inside of my own character, inside my own heart, uh, the positive opportunities in the next moment? You know, what can I do about this situation? What can I recognize in the bigger picture? What can I be grateful for? How can I feel loved and loving, uh, even no matter what has happened for me today at work, you know, and then turn to those beneficial things, which are usually enjoyable and really, really take them in. And for me, that's just a way to practice multiple times a day. Any single time you do those three things, you know, observe the upset, step back from it. Second, uh, disengage from it and stop fueling it. And third, replace what you're, the negative that you're releasing with some positive alternative to it that's authentic and legitimate. You know, any single time you do that, you know, it might take 30 seconds or three minutes usually or less at a time. It's not going to change your life, but the gradual accumulation of those moments of practice, multiple, you know, a few times a day, a handful of times a day, day by day by day, rather than doing what is typical for people, which is just marinating in the acid bath. If you do what I'm describing a handful of times every day, you'll feel different at the end of that particular day, and you'll feel really different at the end of a week, and definitely different at the end of months of this kind of practice. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So changing gears a little bit, but I think this ties into what you were just talking about. Share with me the concept of the two wolves. Oh, sure. Uh, this is a metaphor I've, I've borrowed from a Native American teaching story, um, and it really speaks to the importance of you know, what we do each day. I think people tend to focus on, you know, macro stuff, giant, you know, winning the lottery, getting the big promotion, you know, like the huge stuff. But most of what life's about is the little stuff. So in this teaching story, a woman is asked toward the end of her life, grandmother, how did you become so happy? What did you do? How did you become so successful, so loved, and so wise? What did you do? She paused and reflected, and she said, you know, I think it's because when I was young like you, I realized that in my heart were two wolves, one of love and one of hate. And then, most important of all, I realized that everything depended upon which one I fed each day. That's the story, you know, and it speaks, of course, to the presence of the capacity or even inclination toward, metaphorically speaking, the wolf of hate, you know, resentment, envy, ill will, aggression, even war, right? Uh, and what it also speaks to, though, more generally important, is the power of little things. 
In other words, we're constantly feeding the brain, in effect, one experience or another, right? And uh, the question is, where do we rest our attention? Because, um, you know, neurons that fire together, that wire together, are absolutely turbocharged for what is in the field of focused attention, uh, you know, in the larger background of conscious experience. There's lots of information processing in the nervous system that's unconscious, outside of awareness by its very nature, such as, you know, the deep software, as it were, for moving your arm to reach and pick up a cup of coffee, bring it to your lips without spilling it and set it down again. You know, we have no direct access to that underlying, you know, sensory motor software, as it were. But uh, there's not much learning that happens, not much change, not much development or healing or growth in terms of um, the information flows in the nervous system that are outside of awareness. But we're designed to learn as other animals are designed. We're designed to learn from our experiences especially the experiences we bring focused attention to. That's in part one reason why it's so important to get regulation over attention, you know, rather than letting others around us grab it and pull it one way or another, or letting our attention uh, be um, controlled by our habits. You know, if you think about it, the primary puppet masters in our life live inside our ears, you know, right between our ears, live inside our head. And that's where we're being controlled, you know, dragging our attention in one direction or another, much of which is negative in terms of negative preoccupation. So instead, I think it's really important to disengage from feeding and fueling the wolves of hate or hurt or anxiety or, un, you know, irrational worry or feelings of inadequacy or woulda, coulda, shoulda, second guessing oneself, Monday morning quarterbacking, you know, stop feeling, feeding those wolves. If you attack those wolves, you just feed them, right? It's not about attacking them or suppressing them. It's about, you know, just not feeding them anymore or stopping feeding them when you catch yourself feeding them. And in particular, Feed the wolf pack of love or the wolf pack of resilience, grit, determination, you know, feelings of self-worth, happiness, well-being, uh, feelings of meaning and purpose in life, you know, taking the big picture of life into account, you know, at the end of the, the lifespan, you know, as others have pointed out, very few people think to themselves, damn, I should have worked more hours. Darn, I should have improved my quarterly metrics. You know, that's not what people are thinking in the last years of their life. They're thinking about the people they've loved and the people that have loved them and the contributions that they've made and the good times that they've had and the meaning that they've been able to cultivate inside themselves, the meaning of life, a sense of fulfillment in life altogether. That's what it really, really matters most. So let's feed those wolves. And let's also feed the factors inside ourselves, the psychological, mental resources inside ourselves that help us feed those wolves and help us, um, you know, accomplish big things, um, helping ourselves in our career and our personal life and helping the larger world as a result. I think that's such an important statement that it's not about attacking or suppressing necessarily the negative feelings or the wolf of hate, but it's about kind of, what would you say, acknowledging them or just accepting yeah, them? That's right. That's that first thing I was saying of the three practices. You know, the first one is to be with what's there, but not identified with it. In other words, not glued to the horror show on the movie screen, but popped back 20 rows eating popcorn, sympathetically going, whoa, that sucks. But just that alone, popping out of the movie, stepping back from it, observing it mindfully, being able to name it to yourself, 
wow, I'm so irritated right now. Wow. You know, I'm obsessing about this stupid little thing. Wow. You know, knowing for yourself what's really going on, that's critically important. And then stop fueling that fire. You know, it's not about fighting it or suppressing it. You got to feel the feelings. You got to experience the experience, you know, including the deeper, more vulnerable, often younger layers. But that's not enough. That's not enough. A lot of people overvalue just witnessing their experience. You know, they could give you a master's thesis on their neurosis, but they're as unhappy, you know, as ever. We also need to, you know, not fuel the negative and we just need to release it. And then in particular, grow the positive. Yeah, I find that path to be one that I walk multiple times a day, you know, recognize that I'm irritated or contracted or driven or feeling uh, glum in some way. And then second, um, not, you know, fueling it any further. And then third, as appropriate and authentic, shifting, shifting into turning toward the positive alternative, which is where I really want to sink my roots and make my home. Shifting the direction a little bit, Buddha's Brain, your book, Buddha's Brain, has an amazing and fascinating discussion of the concept of the self uh-huh. and whether it exists. Going hardcore, man. <laughs> this is good. You're not messing around here. Oh, definitely not. Um, we like to dig deep on the science of success. Yeah. Um, but, you know, kind of the concept of the self, whether it exists and what its true nature is, I'd love for to hear your thoughts on that. That's a profound topic, obviously, and one that, you know, philosophers, mystics, psychologists have been really preoccupied with. And I'll just say that uh, maybe I'll just offer sort of the short version because uh, it's huge. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for me, the short version is to, first of all, like a lot of thorny topics, get real clear about what the words mean. What do we mean by that deceptively short and simple four letter, one syllable word? self, right? And I think basically there are two meanings of it. And there it's very important to draw this distinction. The first meaning is the person altogether. You're a person, man. I'm a person. We're distinct from each other. You know, you're uh, the totality of your body mind over time. That's the person. It exists. It's real. Um, it has duties. It has rights. It has responsibilities. You know, it uh, has moral standing. We're persons. There's no question about that. The other way, though, that the word self uh, is defined is, in effect, to refer to a kind of entity inside us, uh, somebody looking out through our eyes, the agent of actions and owner of experiences, the quote-unquote I uh, behind the eyes, right? And then the question really becomes, there's no question about what the person is and the fact that persons are separate from each other, you know, they, they have continuity and so forth. But is there actually such a being inside us looking through the eyes? That's a deep question. And in ordinary life in Western, particularly in Western culture, there's an ongoing assumption that, yeah, there really is that little homunculus inside, that little entity inside. And yet, if you look really closely at it in your own experience, you'll never find the complete package of the presumed eye you will find many experiences in which there's a presumption implicit in the experience or the little movies running inside your mind or the little inner chatter that there is such an entity inside. You'll find presumptions of that entity. And you'll often encounter um, a kind of sense of an eye, you know, a sense of a subject, an intact, unified, enduring 
independently arising subject somewhere inside yourself. You have a sense of it, but the sense of it is really different from it itself. And if you look closely, you'll never find the complete package. And if you look at the, uh, the brain neurologically, well, you can find a lot of localization of function for many, many things, you know, like moving your left little finger or recognizing the face of a friend or being able to comprehend language or in other regions produce language. There's a lot of localization of function for all kinds of things. There's no localization of function for that uh, for an eye inside ourselves. It's widely distributed. The uh, neural processing that supports the sense of eye, and you can do different, give people different things to do inside MRIs. And, you know, there's a lot of research literature about this. The basis for the sense of self is widely distributed in the brain. And second, it's throughout parts of the brain that do all kinds of other things too. In other words, there's nothing special about the sense of eye even though we feel we're so special, right? So what's the practical takeaway from all this? It really helps you take life less personally and move out of a contracted sense of being an ego and defending yourself or trying to glorify yourself or, you know, hold on to the status of this me, you know, inside, this I inside. And instead of being so attached to the I inside, uh, or um, defensive about it, taking things personally, uh, you know, ruminating about, oh, oh, how could you do that to me? What do you think about me? Blah, 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 blah. Instead of doing that, just relax more, lighten up more, come into the fullness of your process as person, you know, personing over time. While, yeah, for sure, standing up for yourself, standing up for your person. Uh, yeah, taking responsibility as a person for your impact on others and inheriting the results of the stuff you did, good or bad, back in the day, yesterday or a year ago or, you know, when you were in college as a person, you know, living with the results of your own actions as a person, sure. But meanwhile, you know, uh, this is kind of summarized, uh, I'll finish on this point, in a Southeast Asian uh, monk, uh, it kind of makes more sense when you see it in writing, but you can you can get it just hearing it. He says, love yourself. Just don't love your self. In other words, there's two words. And I think that summarizes a lot of teaching here. Uh, you know, stand up for yourself, but don't take life so personally. And one of my favorite concepts relating to the self that you discuss, and, and I know Alan Watts has, has talked tremendously about this concept as well, but it's the idea that the self does not have an independent existence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, if you think about it, everything in the inside ordinary reality arises due to causes. Now, maybe those causes can be traced back to arbitrary quantum level processes in the first trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second of the Big Bang, right? Uh, okay, but at that point, after the Big Banged, you know, it's been causal and deterministic inside of ordinary reality ever since. So 
you you know your body arises due to causes. And those causes are you know embedded in 600 million years of the evolution of, ner- of the nervous system, embedded in another prior three billion years of life on this planet, you know, and in a universe that's about 13.7 billion years old. So the takeaway from that, uh, for some people can be a sense of despair, you know, like, right, there's no independence, everything is interdependently arising. And yet what seems to happen, and this goes back to what I said in the very beginning about reverse engineering awakened mind, or working backwards from, you know, very, very high levels of self-actualization and trying to understand what in the world is going on in the brain of somebody who's a peak performer at work and who also has a lot of inner peace or um, is, you know, deeply realized in some remarkable sense. Um, you know, enlightenment is more rare than an Olympic gold medal, as best we can tell throughout history, certainly over the last hundred years. And yet it's clear that there are some people who really are enlightened and they're different, like, but they still have bodies, right? They still have a reptilian nervous system, uh, brainstem. What's going on in those brains? So my point about all this is that as people in their own movement down the path of awakening or personal growth over time. And definitely it's a report of people, ordinary human beings like us who are awakened or close to it, that as you come more and more into the felt recognition that your personing over time is a local ripple in a vast network of causes, you know, you are definitely a, you, the person are a unique person wave uh, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, to be sure. And yet what's happening in your life over your lifespan, you know, three score and 10 years, or hopefully even more, you know, than 70 years altogether, um, your local wave of livingness, rickness over time, madness over time, is just a local expression of a vast ocean of causes. And when people really get that in a felt way, it often starts intellectually. You realize, yeah, that is true, but what's the feeling of it being true? As you come more and more into the feeling of it being true, you don't get despairing and depressed. You actually get kind of ecstatic. And it's really interesting. It's it's joyful and peaceful when you realize, wow, man, what's happening here locally is almost entirely outside of my control. I'm just doing the best I can in this moment of waving, right, of being a wave in the middle of the ocean, uh, trying not to hurt other waves as best I can, trying to learn and grow from the currents moving through me in this moment, trying to help useful residues stick around, you know, keep some foamy lace, keep some seaweed that's really useful for me in this wave that I am in this moment. But what happens generally is people lighten up enormously. I certainly have. Um, you know, people start to feel when they relax this sense of being a brick somehow in life, you know, struggling with other bricks, you know, selfifying uh, as they go through their days and instead realize, wow, we're all in this together. We're all waves in a vast ocean of causes. Yeah, I'm going to take care of my wave. Yeah, I want your wave to quit stealing my parking place or, you know, mistreating me in my relationship or my job. You know, there's a place for that. But when you start to hold on to this bigger picture, my expression is love the wave, be the ocean. 
You know, when you start experiencing more and more uh, life as the whole tapestry of causes, as the whole ocean of causes, honestly, you get less stressed, you lighten up, um, you get less irritated with other people, and you start getting taken more and more profoundly into an underlying unconditional inner peace. You're not, that's the observation, clearly, of people who've you know, deepened in this form of practice over time. And it's clearly the case of people who are reporting back to us what it's like for them to feel completely identified with the ocean altogether, while also recognizing that they have a body, they have a you know, unique personhood and personal life, but it's embedded in, you know, the felt sense of being the whole ocean. That's so powerful. And, and, and I really, really enjoyed hearing that wisdom. That's great. Well, a little bit of it's my own. Most of it's not. Most of it is stuff I'm just passing along through me. But you're right. Um, maybe we're finishing up here, Matt. And I'll, I'll just say that I think that it's important to deal, obviously, with the needs, the demands, the ambitions of everyday life, the situations, the, the issues and so forth. Okay. But then the question becomes, are we just treading water uh, or are we using these experiences to learn and grow along the way? You know, have we, are we exercising our superpower, as it were, uh, of, you know, of learning along the way? And really, the super superpower is learning how to learn along the way? Are we applying those lessons as we go? And really along the way, treating yourself like you matter. You know, this life is rare and precious. As best most people know, this is the only life they're ever going to have. You know, what's the line from Mary Oliver, the poet, you know, tell me, what shall you do with your one wild and precious life? Right. And, um, you know, I think also I was at a commencement uh, recently and uh, the dean was quoting uh, from a poet who was quoted in the memorial service for a roommate of his in college who died young. And the poem comes from Raymond Carver, uh, who also wrote detective stories, I learned. But anyway, I think the the poem is very short. It goes, uh, did you get what you wanted from this life even so? I did. Uh, what was it uh, to call myself beloved, beloved on this earth? That's an almost exact quote. And the opening question is so profound. Did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, right? And I think it's important to do that, to not just mark time, but to actually look for opportunities to feed yourself and grow yourself from the inside out along the way. Thank you for sharing that. That was amazing. Uh, and we'll, we'll include a link to that poem in the show notes as well. Oh, great. It's called, I think it's called late fragment. Well, Hey, maybe I could finish by quoting the Buddha or yeah, the, absolutely. the Buddha said, and it's very short and sweet. I think about this a lot and it's very central to our conversation, you know, about feeding the wolf of love and, and turning lots of ordinary little experiences, you know, half a dozen of them or so over the course of the day, turning those into some kind of lasting value woven into the fabric of your nervous system. Um, the quotation from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada, uh, is, Think not lightly of good, saying, It will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. That's awesome. 
as we wrap up one last time, where can people find you online if they want to learn more, if they want to find out more about everything that, that you've written and all the things that you've shared? Sure. My pleasure. Um, yeah, rickhanson.net. That's S-O-N, rickhanson.net. It's just a big treasure chest, honestly, of tons of freely offered resources of various kinds. Uh, talks, videos, slide sets from workshops, uh, both short and long that I've taught. Um, you know, links to really good scientific papers in the public domain that are kind of like greatest hits. Uh, tons and tons of practical stuff. Also, I, I do a program online that uh, is uh, offered for free to anyone with financial needs. Obviously, of course, if people can afford it, I, I love for them to pay for it. But it's an online program called the Foundations of Well-Being that um, is really about the fundamentals of applying positive neuroplasticity, the superpower, the how of self-help, applying those to growing 12 key inner strengths inside you uh, that then you can draw upon every day hardwired into your own nervous system. So check it out, rickhanson.son.net, and particularly check out this program, The Foundations of Wellbeing, that anyone can do online from anywhere in the world. Well, Rick, this has been a fascinating interview, and I know personally I've, I've learned a ton, and I've really enjoyed hearing from you. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for being on the show. Matt, it's been a pleasure and an honor, and hopefully uh, what we've talked about will be of some use to people. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I would love to hear from you personally. You can email me at matt, that's M-A-T-T, at scienceofsuccess.co. That's matt at scienceofsuccess.co. I'd love to hear your story. I reply to everybody who emails me. I read every single email that I get. So please shoot me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. Every single review, every single subscription matters. It helps boost us in the algorithm and get us to the top of iTunes so more people can discover the science of success. Lastly, as a thank you to you for being awesome, every single month I give away a $100 Amazon gift card to one lucky listener. Last week, we gave away $100 Amazon gift card to Christian Strider from Munich, Germany. You could be the next lucky winner. All you have to do to be entered to win is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Again, that's SMARTER to 44222. Or if you're international and you can't text that number, just go to our website, scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and join our email list. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.